Scripture for our message this evening comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, the fifth chapter. We'll be reading verses 11 through 21, which is the end of the chapter, tonight. You'll find that on page 806 in your pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along there or in the Bible that you own. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Hear now the very word of God. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we, are sou- if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that one died for all, then all died. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's part of the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, we are... Very grateful that you have indeed chosen to make us your righteousness through Christ, that he who died for us died so that we might not live unto ourselves. Help us to understand what that means better this evening. Help us to live more and more on your behalf. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. a few years ago, actually many years ago, uh, my family and I lived in Berlin, Germany. And uh, when we would come home with our four children, it was always a challenge to find uh, affordable flights for all six of us. And our search at that time would always seem to inevitably land us on British Airways connecting through Heathrow Airport, which I assure you, I did almost everything to avoid. And at that time, British Airways would charge children 11 and under literally half the fare of the adults, and there was just simply no way to beat that. So had to reconcile ourselves to traveling through Heathrow. And 
Heathrow at that time, much more so than now, was a mess and was kind of perpetually under construction and you could never stay in the same terminal. You always had to transfer terminals. And at that time, there was a heightened threat of terrorism from the Irish Republican Army, of all things. So you had to go through security lines that make the ones that we have today look kind of laughable, actually. And... The worst part of it was, especially when traveling with small children, was that they would never post the actual gate from which your flight was departing until 60 minutes before the flight, which is actually still true at all London airports. Um, And so you would be sitting there watching the board, watching the board, and then it would post the gate, and then there would be this sprint, usually it would seem, to the gate that was furthest from uh, from the lounge you were sitting in. And so, and so it happened one time when we were transiting there with our children in tow that we were on our sprint to the, to the gate where our, from which our flight would de- depart. And along the way, there were uh, some teenagers who were obviously American and they were all wearing the same color t-shirts and they were, uh, they were kind of being very loud and using, using foul language and, uh, generally making me wish that I was carrying a Canadian passport. And, uh, at the time we turned the corner and got to where the gate was, there was a sea of these children who were all going to be on our flight. And as we waited to board and we got there and we were sitting in the midst of a number of them, I, after the flight took off, I had occasion to speak to the chaper- one of the chaperones for them. I said, what, what, what group is this actually that, uh, that is uh, flying together? And she says, oh, these are goodwill ambassadors. And uh, went, on to, went on to explain that this was a program that had started uh, under President Eisenhower. And, uh, and I thought to myself, ambassadors indeed, uh, kind of showing the rest of the world some, perhaps some of the less attractive sides of, uh, of our country. Well, if that is a, if that is a negative example of, of being an ambassador, what uh, what does it mean to be a good ambassador? Well, in general, it means to represent something greater than yourself in a positive way to an outside audience. And to be an ambassador in Christ, as Paul puts it in our in our passage this evening, we would represent Christ to this fallen world. Well, how should we do that? Well, to answer that question, first. We need to understand the motivations of an ambassador. And then we need to consider the medium of an ambassador. And finally, we need to know the message of an ambassador. And armed with all of those things, we can begin, perhaps, to become effective ambassadors for Christ. But first, the motivations of an ambassador. And as Paul presents them here, the motivations are twofold. They they serve perhaps as bookends at the beginning of our passage. And, uh, as, uh, and as we see it here, the very first of those, of those motivations is the fear of the Lord, or as the New King James puts it, the terror of the Lord. Now, there is a therefore in verse 11, and I'm sure some of you have probably heard the old saw that when you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? And what it inevitably is there for is to refer back 
to something that had been said, that something that had been said previously, upon which this statement is going to depend. It's going to be based in what's in something that was already said. And this is in this particular case, it is going back to the preceding verse, verse ten which states that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will receive what is due in the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that alone probably needs to be unpacked a little bit. Um, What Paul is talking about here is not a fear of eternal judgment because Paul knows that knows that Christ has covered his sin. He makes that very plain uh, if, you, if all you had to go on was his correspondence with the church at Corinth. And he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So he is saying that he himself is going to stand before that judgment seat. And no matter what you might think of the church of Corinth, and if you're familiar with Paul's broader writings to the church of Corinth, Paul is addressing them here as believers. So he is not, as it might initially seem, holding over their head the threat of the loss of their eternal security. He really wouldn't call them his letter of recommendation earlier in this, in this book if he felt otherwise. But instead, Paul is speaking, it would seem, about some varying degrees of reward in heaven for those who are believers. And this is an important message for the Corinthians in particular, given their licentious behavior that really borders on the outrageous at points. And his first letter to the Corinthians in the fifth chapter of that letter, Paul says that I've heard that there's sin among you and it's sin of such a kind that even the Gentiles will have nothing to do with it. That is that a man has his father's wife. And so the uh, what Paul is saying to them there is like this is the way you're behaving is simply outrageous. It's so outrageous that it would drive off any interested Gentile because your behavior is worse than theirs. So Paul is here, in a sense, providing a corrective to that, saying that one day you're going to answer for that, for the way that you have represented Christ to an outside world. They will give an account to Jesus directly. For how they've lived. They are not to take their salvation for granted. Nor are we for that matter. They are to represent the one who has rightly paid for their lives. And whose interests they now represent. Because as Paul lays it out here. They quite literally owe Christ their very lives. And he goes on to amplify this about his own behavior and his own comportment towards the Corinthians and other outsiders. He says, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. In other words, 
If the world should reckon us as being crazy, then that's for God's sake. And frankly, more and more Christian devotion in our own world is reckoned as a form of madness, even actual mental illness by the by the world around us. And that's something that we are to endure on God's behalf, knowing, as Paul says it here, the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord would be that first motivation of an ambassador. But the second of them is the love of Christ. In verse 14, he says that the love of Christ controls us. Now, in the abstract, the love, love can be a very subjective thing. Uh, uh, long ago, a professor of mine talked about listening to a radio call-in show with a, with a panel of experts, like a rabbi and a priest and several others, talking about, the, talking about the subject of love. And he called into the show, and he says, well, I, I feel very privileged to be with such a, such a wonderful panel of people. I, don't, I, I, I hesitate even to ask this question, but I'd just like the panel to define love for me. Silence. They couldn't define love and eventually put it back on him. Well, perhaps the caller has a definition. And uh, and he did. He said, uh, willing, the, willing the good of, of another is, was the definition he used. He says, but I think it's I think it's interesting that you've spent two hours talking about love here and you can't even define it. And so love is a word that gets thrown around very loosely in our society. Uh, and But Paul is giving shape to it here, and he's specifically not talking about how much we love Christ, but rather his love for us expressed in his death. Paul says that he died for all, therefore all have died. That is, all whom for whom he died have died along with him. We're united to Christ in his death. And it tells us something about how we should regard our own lives. Because the implications of that are that he died for all those that they, the, who live, they might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, your life, once rescued by Christ through his death, is no longer yours to do with what you please. And the net effect of these two motivations is very similar. In both cases, you are not free as a believer to live on your own agenda. You are on Christ's agenda with your life. And while this is a fairly basic and consistent teaching of Scripture, it's sadly one that is proclaimed less and less in the churches of our day. In fact, it's often even completely reversed, where God is portrayed as being on your agenda and serving your desires. I had occasion while we were in Portugal to worship in a church that was an international English-speaking church, kind of broadly evangelical, really a fairly good message preached. But one thing I noticed about the singing is that every, almost without exception, as they talked about God, it was talking about how we experienced God or what God was to us. 
Not who he was in the abstract, but rather what he what, what he meant to us, what 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 he could do for us. And that frankly is turning the message of this passage somewhat on its head. And that it's saying that Christ has already died for you, therefore you cannot live for yourself and on your own agenda. You are on, from this point forward, Christ's agenda. And to say otherwise is a corruption of the gospel. We represent Christ because he has secured our obedience with his death on his behalf. Now how we are to represent him takes us to our second point, the medium of an ambassador. Now when I say the medium of an ambassador, I don't mean someone whom an ambassador would consult to use for divination like Saul did with the medium of Endor in 1 Samuel. But rather, I'm speaking of the ambassador as the medium himself. And Paul is getting at this in verse 20 when he talks about God making his appeal through us, that is, through him and his associates. God is using them as his conduit for his message. Paul is God's delivery system. And he was quite clear about the implications of this elsewhere in his writings to the Corinthians. Consider what he says in chapter 9 here. I've become all things to all people that I may by all means save some. That's his summary of talking about how he behaves among different groups. That he is first and foremost concerned about their salvation. And therefore he throws away his own desires and acts in such a way that they can understand. One chapter earlier than that, he says in, in, regarding, in answering a question regarding food sacrifice to idols and whether or not Christians should partake, well, he acknowledges that there really isn't any such thing as an idol, per se, because there really there is one God. In other words, there's one God, and then there are a bunch of human representations of things claiming to be God. So food sacrifice to an idol really shouldn't matter to those who have this knowledge. However, Paul acknowledges that not all do have this knowledge. And Paul cautions the Corinthians that their rights in this area not become a stumbling block to others. And for Paul's part, he says that if the food I eat makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I cause my brother to stumble. It's very much the stance that Daniel and his companions took as they were hauled off to Persia, and they were offered the king's food, which they knew had been sacrificed to idols. They refused it, and at risk of their own life, they ate vegetables instead. And God blessed that obedience. Again, they were representing in a very foreign land, knowing that this, they regard idols as real. We can't eat this food, and they didn't. Paul takes the same conduct. Yes, you're right. There isn't anything really as an idol. Sacrificing it to idol is sacrificing it to a statue. It makes no sense whatsoever. But if it's real in someone else's mind, your partaking might 
in fact, cause them to stumble. And Paul will have no part of that because he realized that his conduct and his way of life were themselves powerful means of communication. And he didn't want them to send a contrary message to what he said with his lips. And this is something that is perhaps even more of a consideration in our day where authenticity is prized and niceness is perhaps the only agreed upon moral value. And I would say that cults like Mormonism perhaps have a better handle on this than we as Christians often do. We experienced this ourselves when we were living in Berlin and our children went to school with Mormons and we were involved with Boy Scouts and often were with them. And I can remember when we had had a particularly bad day. Um, I wasn't getting phone calls from other Christians I knew, but a Mormon housewife, whose our kids were friendly together, gave us a loaf of fresh-baked bread, saying, I know it's been a hard day for you. And that sometimes, even though we have the truth on our side, is what prevents people from ever listening to it. It's the way that we conduct ourselves. Back in the 1960s, it was Marshall McLuhan who first said, the medium is the message. And the idea behind that was that the medium of communication, in this case the television, had itself overwhelmed and become more important than the actual content of the message. McLuhan was one of the first to understand the power of visual imagery and how it could actually overwhelm what was actually spoken and objectively and objectively at the content. And if that was true in the 1960s with black and white televisions with screens that size, imagine how much more true it is today with the bombardment of messages including those from something that we probably all have in our pocket right now, that the medium is more and more and more and more the message. And you know what? We are the medium of God's message to, an individ- to many an individual audience. You've probably heard the old, the old saying that the only Bible people may ever read is your life. And it's important that we recognize that. Our behavior can either validate the objective content of the gospel or completely undermine it. And I've had that driven home to me on multiple occasions. Not that long ago, I was driving to a meeting of presbytery, and as as seems to be the case frequently, I was late. And I was rushing to get there. And as I was getting there, um, the road that I was on narrowed from two lanes to one, and I saw fit to cut off an 18-wheel truck, and he let me know it with a loud blast of his horn. And as I'm driving along, I'm thinking, well, the church is on a side street here. Surely he won't be going that way. Oh, yes, he will. He followed me all the way to see me turn into the church. Now, That person couldn't pick me out of a police lineup. We'll never meet as far as I know. But I'd communicated a message about people who go to churches, particularly Orthodox Presbyterian churches, 
loud and clear in the way I behave. This is why I will never put anything on my car that identifies me as a Christian. But uh, my driving could only serve as a deterrent to people's faith. Um, But every day, in multiple situations, we're confronted with the opportunity to either speak positively for Christ or speak against him. And I would say that the stakes have maybe never been higher that our lives provide a canvas that does not worse, that does not distort or worse undermine the message that God wants to convey. So having looked at that, let's go to that message, the message of an ambassador. And the message that Paul is delivering here is tied up in the ministry of reconciliation that Paul says he's been given. Now, I should say parenthetically, we're reading through some of the densest material of the entire Bible right here, and I am not doing all of it justice. Somebody could come for the next three weeks and preach on this very passage and have something different to say, and it would be true. This is wonderful stuff, this message of reconciliation that he's talking about here. And a message of reconciliation in the abstract, well, it presumes a state of enmity or hostility. And such a state certainly exists between God and fallen man. Fallen man is naturally spiritually dead, and he lives entirely apart from the will or presence of God. He has no capacity to please God on his own. And the desperation of that state is the backdrop for both the magnificence and the urgency of the message of reconciliation that Paul lays out here. As Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Mankind is certainly lost, but not hopelessly so, as Paul says here. For God made Christ, who was sinless, to actually be sin on our behalf, that we might take his righteousness in exchange. It is and will ever be the most unfair exchange known to mankind. Christ takes our sin, we take his righteousness. And that is our only way forward. We're so familiar with it, however, it's really possible to lose our enthusiasm for it. Because it's Truly an incredible message that Paul never lost his awe or his zeal for. Man, who by all rights has done everything to alienate God, to push him away, as we heard this morning, is nonetheless given the opportunity at new life to be a new creature, as Paul says here. To have his slate wiped so utterly clean that not only are the offenses taken away, they are actually replaced by righteousness. Perfect righteousness. And this, the grandeur, grandeur and the wonder of this message is an additional motivation for Paul. And if we are not yet captivated by this message, well, we need to examine ourselves and maybe go back once again and examine the motivations of the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Because this is truly good news. It's the best news of all. 
And as those who've partaken of it, we're called to represent it. We're called to look at the love of Christ and to draw our motivation from it. We're called to consider carefully what sort of medium our life provides as a conduit for this message. Finally, we're called to tell the truth about this hope that we have been given this newness of life and urge others to partake of it. Can you be an ambassador? Let me tell you, if you are a follower of Christ, you already have the job. The only question is, what sort of ambassador will you be? You are representing Christ. The question is, how will you represent him? How well do you understand the message of reconciliation and how readily can you communicate it both with your words and your deeds? Do you live a life that contradicts it or supports it? It's a very high calling and one that we dare not take lightly. For God has called us not just unto our own salvation. He has called us to multiply it throughout the world, to the way we conduct our lives until we see him face to face. Let's pray.